welcome to Walking with Freya, a journey through special needs parenting. This podcast is a place for parents and caregivers of children with special needs to share stories, the very real struggles and challenges we face, along with the inevitable love and joy these children have brought into our lives. This is a place for unapologetic honesty, well-intentioned laughter, and endless support. A safe place for us to learn, share, discuss, and help each other navigate this often unexpected journey. Be kind, be supportive, and when you can, keep the humor. My name is Annie, and welcome to Walking with Freya. I had the pleasure of speaking with Guy Stevens, founder and executive director of the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. I first learned about him and his organization a few weeks ago during a Department of Justice webinar recommended to families by PWSA USA. When I signed on, I wasn't sure what I was going to learn about, and if you're in that same position, this will be an eye-opening, heart-wrenching, and hopefully inspiring episode for you. So stay tuned. But before we get into it, I'd like to make sure that you're all aware of an upcoming online workshop that provides incredibly valuable information and techniques for care providers and parents dealing with chronic stress. So, uh, I think most of you all. (laughs) The Breathe Out Strategies for Calming Your Autonomic Nervous System is an upcoming Zoom workshop on Sunday, September 17th from 6 to 7.30 p.m. Pacific, and that's 9 to 10.30 p.m. Eastern. You'll learn about how chronic stress negatively impacts our physical and mental well-being. Amy Nyer, neuro-PT and mother to a medically complex child, offers potent techniques to reduce those effects. Join this workshop to learn about the autonomic nervous system, which controls our fight and flight response to stress, and explore different strategies to help regulate your autonomic nervous system and decrease the effects that chronic stress has on your body. Fight and flight, rest and digest. These terms are often used to describe the autonomic nervous system, or ANS. The ANS is commonly known as the part of the nervous system you cannot control. Some examples of bodily functions controlled by the ANS include your heart rate, blood pressure, digestion, and temperature. People who experience a lot of chronic stress, including people with medical conditions and their caregivers, often feel the ill effects of being in fight and flight for too long, with a fast heart rate, poor digestion, increased blood pressure, and more. So while fight and flight, or rest and digest, are oversimplified definitions of a very complex part of our nervous systems, it turns out that the ANS is not as far out of our control as was once thought. We can implement several techniques and activities to help regulate our autonomic nervous systems and feel better in our bodies. Join us in learning more about the ANS and techniques to help yourself feel calmer and more in control, which is something I imagine most of you all would like to feel. I know I would uh, this summer, especially. I have really been working on my ability to stay regulated in the face of emotional dysregulation. That's my pitch for, for my life right now. And now that school has started, uh, things have calmed down a bit. I think maybe there was some fear around school starting and knock on wood, so far so good. Things have been going smoothly, but uh, we are going on a class field trip for a week. We're going five days camping field trip and the class is climbing to the top of a volcano. 
a 10,000 foot volcano. My oldest daughter who went on this field trip assures me that it's not that difficult, but um, I have a feeling that Freya and I may be a little behind, uh, but we're going to enjoy the wildflowers that are hopefully still blooming and enjoy the view as far up as we may get. And then when we're ready, we're going to walk down and play some card games and take a nap. So um, that's what we're doing. But anyway, um, I've gone off script. And so there you go. (laughs) That's what's going on in my world. I'm really looking forward to it. And I'm nervous. Honestly, the part I'm most nervous about is that we're going into some lava tubes. And I don't like to be in small enclosed places. So anyway, wish me luck. Uh, And that's all I have to say about that. So um, the workshop, (laughs) being calm, regulating yourself. Yes. So you can sign up for this workshop at www.breathe-community.com or use the link in the show notes. This workshop is coming up fast. So sign up now to get your spot. And while you're on the website, uh, check out some of the other stuff we have on there. There's some great offerings, some free content, uh, some um, courses to download, some a lot of great links. So yeah, just check that out. I hope you check it out, share it with friends, all that stuff. Now, let's get into this episode with Guy Stevens. So first, we discuss what restraint and seclusion in school looks like and the origins of behavior and individuals and the work that AASR does. The heart-wrenching part of this episode is, of course, the stories of kids who have suffered under these archaic actions. The inspiration is in the work that AASR has and still is doing and the ways that families can seek help or offer it. So please check the show notes for the link tree to reach out to the organization, support their cause, buy merchandise, listen to the podcast, and more. I found this episode to be incredibly enlightening and plan to share it widely to spread the word. I hope that you will do the same. And as always, thanks for being here. There we go. All right. Okay. Well, thank you so much for uh, being here with me and talking about your organization, Guy. Um, so if you if you want to go ahead, would you mind introducing yourself to the audience? Sure. Uh, my name is Guy Stevens. I'm the executive director of the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. Yeah. Thank you. So I so I'd love to hear about the organization, but I wonder if maybe we should start with. Uh, kind of a definition of what seclusion and restraint looks like in schools. Sure, sure. sure. Um, so seclusion and restraint aren't, uh, of course, unique to schools. Um, however, the first time I heard the words restraint and seclusion in the context of a school, I was somewhat surprised. Uh, I don't know that I would have imagined that physical restraint and seclusion were things that might happen in a school. But uh, let, let's begin by just kind of defining what we're talking about. So when we're talking about restraint, uh, I'm going to focus first on physical restraint. Uh, a physical restraint is when you are holding someone in such a way that you're preventing them from moving on their own. Um, so more to the point, uh, it's very often something that has been uh, used or perceived to be needed in crisis situations where someone is having a difficult time. And uh, you're essentially holding them to prevent them from being able to, you know, move 
on their own accord. So uh, restraints can look a lot of different ways. Uh, you might have a standing restraint where one or more individuals is holding uh, a child in the case of schools. Uh, you have on the ground restraints like prone and supine restraint. And when I talk about restraint, people often think about prone restraint because it's the one that uh, very often has made the news and has involved the death of ind individuals. And, and we've seen that happen not only in uh, schools, but also in law enforcement settings. So uh, physical restraint is just holding someone, preventing them from moving on their own. Um, and of course, there are other kinds of restraint as well. One is mechanical restraint. Uh, one of the things that we've seen happen before in schools is we've seen kids actually um, strapped to chairs. Uh, in fact, there's a piece of equipment called a Riften chair, which has a very specific purpose uh, for children that need positional support. But we've seen those chairs used in such a way to prevent kids from moving around the classroom. Uh, that would be a mechanical restraint. And of course, uh, the company that makes those chairs actually has an article on their website saying, hey, this is not how you're supposed to use these chairs. Um, we've even seen stories of, of kids being duct taped to their seat or uh, tied to trees. So uh, mechanical restraint involves some kind of device. Uh, and then, of course, there's uh, chemical restraint. And chemical restraint might involve some sort of medication, prescribed or otherwise. Uh, sometimes it's a matter of uh, medications that are being used uh, really not as for their intended purposes. Um, I would say to you that physical restraint is probably the most prevalent in schools, uh, although we certainly see some mechanical restraint. And, uh, uh, you know, it's not of the realm of possibility that you might even hear about instances of chemical restraint being used. Seclusion is putting a person in a room or area against their will from which you prevent them from leaving. Um, and in schools, this has become... Well, let's say not an uncommon practice, meaning that there are many schools around the nation that have rooms specifically for this purpose. Uh, they are probably not called seclusion rooms. They might be called cool rooms or calm rooms or blue rooms, or I've seen rooms called things like Alaska. Um, you know, but the the defining characteristic is not what you call the room. What makes seclusion seclusion is how the room is used. So if you're putting a child in a room or area against their will, so that typically involves using force to get them there. We often hear people say, well, I use seclusion because it, it's better than using a physical restraint. Well, truth of the matter is, if you are putting them in a room against their will, you are likely restraining them to get them there. Because if they could walk on their own accord, they shouldn't probably by almost any state law be put into a seclusion room. So seclusion is the act of putting somebody in a room or area against their will. Um, it may be alone, but it doesn't have to be alone. If you're in the room only to prevent them from leaving, I would call it seclusion um, and not letting them leave. And people often do it under the guise of, um, you know, kids need a place to calm down. But if you're forcing them in a room area against their will, trust me, it is not at all calming or therapeutic. Mm -hmm. When I first heard you uh, talk about this in the webinar, which I'll bring up in a little bit, um, I mean, I, I joined the webinar. It was um, put out by the organization PWSA, which is um, my daughter has PWS. So, and uh, so they let us all know about it. And I wasn't really sure what I, what it was about necessarily. I mean, it just and I just the first thought I had was like, this is so archaic. Like I just I I can't believe it. Yeah, you know, I and I was with you. I mean, I again, I would not have imagined that that children are physically restrained and put into isolation rooms at a school. 
And again, this commonly happens under the idea of crisis management. Um, but I'll tell you, there are far better approaches and, and it really is archaic. I mean, uh, I would say to you that, you know, putting somebody in a room or area against their will and not letting them out. Um, I mean, honestly, I don't believe there's ever an appropriate reason to to do that. Uh, I would say seclusion, I don't mean to speak too strongly here, but it's more akin to torture. Uh, it's like solitary confinement. Uh, the idea that you may need to physically restrain another human being at some point. Um, what I would say is that the use of a physical restraint at a school should be exceedingly unusual. Um, I'm sure we can dive into this later, but one of the issues here is that there are no laws around, there's no federal law around the use of restraint seclusion. Mm -hmm. And what that means is every state is on their own in terms of their laws and policies. But what much of the guidance out there has said for quite some time is that neither of these things should really be used unless it's a situation that, you know, is a crisis situation, you've tried everything else you can try, and it's needed to avoid imminent serious physical harm. Now, imminent serious physical harm has a legal definition. It's not a scratch or a bite or somebody might, it's not unsafe or somebody might get hurt. It's a potentially life-threatening situation. So what I would say to you is that if you look at that guidance that's been out there, the, the Department of Education put it out, gosh, over 10 years ago, um, in, in my opinion, uh, something like a physical restraint should never be used unless it really is a potentially life-threatening situation because the use of physical restraint is potentially life-threatening itself. We know that hundreds of children have died being put into physical restraints at schools by well-intentioned people uh, that were concerned about safety or other things. And uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, kids have died due to these interventions. So yeah, I agree with you. I mean, it absolutely, um, it seems archaic. Um, and, and here's the thing. Uh, this isn't about judging people or, or blaming people, but it's about the fact that there are better things that we can and should do to help kids, because when we talk about these things happening, they most often happen to children with disabilities, black and brown kids, kids with a trauma history, and very young kids. This is more often than not a young disabled child. This might be a child with PWA. This might be a child that's autistic. This might be a child that has ADHD. Um, often five, six, seven years old. We can do better. Uh, there are absolutely things that we can do, not only to avoid the crisis in the first place, but to better manage a crisis without doing something like a restraint or seclusion, if that were to happen. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I'm just thinking that I imagine for, um, that's where it gets tricky is there There must be a fine, there's probably a fine line um, somewhere. I mean, I was just thinking of like, you know, for a while seeing these videos of, you know, kids with autism and how, uh, you know, like there's a way to, to help them, you know, quote unquote, help them kind of regulate by, um, kind of holding them. I remember seeing videos of some of these holds and now I'm just wondering, like, are those some of the holds that you're talking about that were... Well so, so, you know, you'll hear people say that these things, and, and when when I'm talking about restraint seclusion, what I'm talking about are things that are intended as crisis interventions only to be used in potentially life-threatening situations. I'm not talking, for instance, about a hug. You know, there's nothing wrong with hugging a child. Um, but some of these things you hear termed, and, and I've heard people say, well, you know, um, in fact, there was a school in Illinois uh, that when we were pushing for legislation to ban prone restraint in schools in Illinois, fought back, and they wrote a letter to the editor of the Chicago Tribune saying that prone restraint was safe and therapeutic. 
Nothing could be further from the truth. Prone restraint is intended as a, a crisis management intervention. And in fact, it can be dangerous. You're, you're, you can uh, it cause what they call a fix, uh, positional asphyxia, which can affect somebody's ability to breathe. You might recall George Floyd, who died being put into a prone restraint. This has happened in schools. Um, so, you know, when we look at these things, there's a lot of risk. So people will talk about pressure. Um, now, let's not confuse other things with what a physical restraint is. And what I would say to you is that when you are doing things that is against another human being's uh, will, against their agency, um, and you're holding them against their will, that is a restraint. If you're doing something with cooperation of a, of a child that uh, you know, is okay, or for anyone, honestly, you know, um, a hug is okay. I encourage hugs, <laughs> right? Um, but, but again, we often hear things that confuse the issue, and then people say, "Well, you know, uh, seclusion rooms—they're okay because sometimes kids need a quiet place to calm down." Well, I have no problem with a quiet place for a kid to go that might be uh, overwhelmed by sensory stimuli, but when you are taking that child, putting them in that space against their will, and not letting them out. That is seclusion. If you have a small room or area where a kid can go on a self-directed break, that's okay. But you, we hear these things kind of confused, and that, that causes the issue to be confused. When we talk about these things, we're really talking about things that are intended for crises and things that are intended for really serious situations. Mm -hmm. I was uh, telling my friend about this interview, and she sent me an email that she received recently in, in El Dorado County, I believe is where it is. Um, in 2018, there was a young boy who, after 90 minutes of a prone restraint, passed away, which is just, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and uh, El Dorado County, California, is that right? Yes. Uh, yeah. So I, I think you're referring to Max Benson, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. Uh, Max Benson, uh, at the time, 2018, was 13 years old, autistic. Um, he was the same age as my son, um, similar profile as my son. Uh, Max was put into a prone restraint that killed him. Um, you know, Max, uh, you know, there, there's some dispute about what led to that. But, you know, there's talk about he kicked a wall. You know, very often these things are done to kids in the name of compliance, in the name of control. Very often, a child who's already having a hard time, a child who might be already dysregulated, um, what they're being met with is compliance demand. So a kid that's already feeling somewhat dysregulated, when your first response is to try to make them comply and do what you want them to do, very often well-intentioned, but probably not appropriately trained staff, are not only failing to de-escalate kids who are having a hard time, they actually escalate them. When you put demands on somebody that's already having a tough time, and it's true of you or me or anyone else, things are going to get worse. And what we know is that, you know, one, restraint and seclusion is traumatic. When you hold someone down to the ground or to the wall or put them in a room by themselves and don't let them out, these things are traumatic. Trauma changes our brain. And I don't mean that figuratively. I mean, there are actually changes that happen to the structure and function of our brain. And those changes lead us to situations where we are more apt to not feel safe, more apt to be more hypervigilant, guess what? More apt to really exhibit distressed behaviors. And when those stress behaviors lead to compliance demands, and of course, we often hear stories, and, and I don't want to discount any of this. I don't want to see anybody injured. I don't want to see a teacher injured. I don't want to see another classmate injured. Uh, there are situations sometimes that things get difficult. But you know, if we resort to using physical restraint or dragging a child off to a seclusion room, 
we're actually increasing the chance of somebody getting hurt. We often see these things being used under the umbrella of safety. But what we know is the moment you go hands-on with any human being, no matter who they are, if you were to go hands-on with me to try to try to subdue me in some way, guess what's going to happen? My body, my body survival instincts are mm-hmm. going to kick in. It's not, it's not a thoughtful process. In fact, the thinking rational part of our brain, the prefrontal cortex, goes offline when we become dysregulated in that way. And what's happening is we're responding from kind of our our limbic system, our amygdala, our threat detection system. And we often hear these behaviors described as aggressive and violent. And this is not about intent. A kid that's having a big behavior that might look like a meltdown is not intending to do harm. They're really dysregulated. And, And what we need is we need to focus on how do we, one, prevent these situations from happening? But two, how do we help kids that are dysregulated or any human being that might be there? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the things that, you know, I've learned having a kid with PWS who who does become emotionally dysregulated and um, through the, you know, the seminars and and the things about behavior management is that, you know, the more dysregulated they get, the, the more regulated and calm you have to be. And like, and that's, you know, it's hard sometimes I will say as her mother, but that's what I see is that if I can meet that with that calm, that empathy, that's what really brings it down. But at the minute I start getting upset with her, she yep. gets ramped up. And, yep. um, yeah, I, I had a friend and, and colleague named Kim Sanders and, and Kim uh, has a saying that when when kids are at their worst, we need to be at our best. And it's mm-hmm. tough. You're right. It's absolutely tough. You know, one of the things that I learned very early as a father of a child with a disability was how much I affected the outcome of a situation, how much whether I got dysregulated myself or became angry or controlling, how much that would change the dynamics of things. And and when I learned not early enough, but but, you know, fairly early on with my son that doing things like taking a step backwards instead of a step forward, uh, getting down on his level, using a very calm voice, um, you know, trying to help him if he was having a hard time. It made a tremendous difference. Uh, and, and you know, we think about behavior very often and we think about, you know, we use lots of words to describe it, but we think about behavior and we put all of it on the child, often a child with a disability or a child that's been through traumatic experiences, and we want them to change. They need to do different things. They need to make different choices. Well, the truth is more of this is on us. More of this is on us as educators, as parents, as caregivers, whatever it may be. We need to change the way that we look at behavior, understand behavior, and respond. Because when you begin to, and this has been part of my journey, was learning some of the brain science behind this. Understanding that, you know, um, our brains play a really active role in behavior. And, you know, when we look at behavior, if you think that all behavior is a matter of intention, you're already getting part of it wrong. (laughs) There's a lot of behavior. And I would say when you're talking about younger children, children with disabilities, children with a trauma history, more and more of the behavior you see is what we might term as a bottom-up behavior. It is a stress response. It is not thoughtful. And, and, you know, I sat there. I sat there in IEP meetings when I had people telling me about this manipulative behavior that my child was doing to try to achieve something that I don't know that I would have been capable of doing as an adult. Yet we put these things on children like, oh, well, they were they were attention seeking. Uh, they you know, we put all of these things on children that that really honestly don't align with where the science is today. We know a lot today about how the brain works, about how behavior works. And unfortunately, 
in many environments, including many of our schools, we are still really relying heavily on, you know, hundred year old approaches that not only aren't working, they're actually leading to harm in many cases. So, you know, this is one of those things that we need to do better. It starts with us. And, and you're so right. I mean, that, that realization that like, oh my, I had an impact on that. And it's tough. So mm -hmm. we need to learn to, to regulate ourselves before we're going to help somebody else get regulated. But we also need to understand that, you know, our brains as adults, you know, the brain takes, well, it's 25, 30 years old before it's fully developed. If we're an adult working with a child who has a brain that is not fully developed, they may not have the developmental capacity to self-regulate. Um, they need to borrow the well-regulated prefrontal cortex of an adult or a caregiver, or a teacher. So there's a lot that we can learn. And when we change what we're doing, it changes everything. So uh, anyway, I'm sorry. To, it, I can no. very easily go down a rabbit hole here. <laughs> no, I love but, it. But, you know, there, there, I mean, there's a lot that we can do to make a positive difference here. Yeah, I like that uh, that image of, of sharing our prefrontal, uh, developed prefrontal cortex with them. Um, and it's it's amazing how hard that is. I mean, the first... Uh, seminar that I did on behavior management. Basically, she was teaching us, you know, I felt like I was being taught how to be empathetic towards my child when she's upset. And it was just, you know, for me, it was an eye opener of like, wow, I sh this shouldn't be so hard to learn. Um, but, <laughs> right. but, well, but, but we'll look at a four-year-old and we'll assume that they're doing these things like, well, she's just trying to get his way. He's just, you know, right. Uh, we, yeah. we, we assume a lot of things that often aren't true. What, what you often have is a kid that's dysregulated, a kid whose stress response system has gone on to high. And, and you know, again, when we think about, you know, um, you know, um, you know, PWS, or we think about autism, we think about other uh, other uh, challenges that some of our children have, um, there may already be sensitivities to, um, you know, stimuli in the environment or sensory issues. Um, so, you know, I mean, really, you you do need to take a step back. I, I don't even, in fact, really like the word or the phrase behavior management, um, because I don't think okay. it's, I don't think we should even approach it by like how we're going to manage other people. It's like, how do we actually connect and collaborate and, and work with other people? Uh, I'm a big fan of uh, kind of collaborative approaches. I mean, you know, and very often we look at children as, you know, we need to control and manage them. Um, right. And in fact, I think sometimes what we need to start with, I mean, is with ourselves. And again, you know, we, we see lots of examples where there are children that are having difficulty, they have a functional behavioral assessment done, which leads to a behavior intervention plan. And uh, in those uh, plans, if you're not discussing adult behavior, you're missing much of what we need to look at. Mm. Much of it, again, is is about the adults that are there and, and changing and reframing how we see things. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I see that. I like that um, in the webinar, you clarified, uh, you know, because some people could potentially say, you know, well, the, I put this kid in seclusion. They had, the, you know, they were in the room um, and, you know, they eventually calmed down. And I think uh, you had said that, um, you know, like after like 30 minutes of being in there, the brain just kind of shuts down. It's not that they're that's calmed right, that's down. Right, that's right. That's right. Yeah, there, there's a lot of misperception. So, you know, when you when you take a kid and you put them into a seclusion room, uh, again, you know, we often hear the intent behind this is like, oh, well, this kid needs a place, a place to go calm down. But if you look at what the definition of seclusion typically is, and we can look at the federal definition, it's it's putting a child in a room area against their will from which they're prohibited from leaving. 
Um, there is nothing calming about being put into a space and not being allowed to leave. Kids go in those rooms, they bang, they scream. Um, they might call for someone they love. They they might urinate on the floor. They might defecate. That's a stress response. That's not, and, and people sometimes outside will go, well, they did it so they could get out. Oh my God. Oh. Uh, no, this wasn't a thoughtful, this, this wasn't a thoughtful, this is, this is over, over stressing an individual. And, and what we may see is that in 20, 25 minutes, you know, the kid slouches against the back of the room and their head goes down and somebody outside goes, oh, well, they've calmed down now. As if suddenly the child had this epiphany where they said, oh, I see what I was doing wrong and, and how it, how I need to change. No, that's not happened at all. When our brains become so overwhelmed by stress and fight or flight doesn't work because we can't get out, we can't fight, our brain will go into a shutdown phase. It's a brainstem, uh, uh, it's a brainstem function where when we become so overwhelmed, our brain begins to shut down. It's protective. Uh, it's an evolutionary adaptation to protect ourselves in this extreme duress. And, and, you know, kids will, well, yes, they might be quiet, but they are shutting down. It is a freeze um, response. It is extremely harmful and traumatic. And, and we even see that some kids, they dissociate in those rooms and, and it's a survival mechanism. Things have gotten so bad. So, you know, again, not to, not to over overemphasize this, but, you know, our belief at the Alliance is that seclusion is never okay. Putting anyone in a room against their will and not letting them out should never, ever happen. And again, I would say that a physical restraint should be really, really rare. If you only ever use the restraint in a crisis situation that potentially was a life-threatening situation, they would not happen 10, 20, or 100 times in a school over the course of a year. If they did, you'd have to evaluate and say, well, this is a pretty dangerous place. Uh, something is not happening. We need to go upstream. And of course, we hear all sorts of logic like, well, and, and you've heard this, like, well, we're dealing with kids that have big behaviors. We're dealing with kids that weren't successful elsewhere. That's not what needs to change here. Um, and, and I can tell you that there are many places that work with the same populations of children that are being restrained and secluded over here that are not doing it over here. Why? Because they're following different approaches. They're following a lot of upstream and preventative approaches that that really minimize those kind of crisis situations. And at the end of the day, I mean, a crisis situation should, should be rare. If in fact, at your child's school, there was one time a year where, oh my gosh, is there, this child almost died. Well, that would be remarkable. But when they happen over and over and over again, it's, it's again, you're, you're failing upstream that we can do something better to prevent getting there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so um, will you tell us about the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint, the work that you do? Sure. Um, so I started the Alliance, uh, gosh, about um, four and a half years ago now. And I started it after my son was inappropriately restrained, secluded, and traumatized. Um I didn't know really too much about restrained seclusion, although um, what led me to starting the alliance well, it wasn't his first um, run in with this. Um, however, after really seeing the harm that was done, uh, I began to do research and try to figure out, you know, who this was happening to, what the impact was, and ultimately what we could do differently. Because I couldn't believe uh, that this was the best that we could be doing. So the alliance formed really initially, I think, with the hope of we wanted other people that were going through this to know they weren't alone, 
We also wanted them to know they could influence change. Very quickly, I began to work at a local level. So when this happened to my son, I began reaching out to our board of education. I began reaching out to the superintendent. Uh, not to say everybody was happy to hear from me initially, but ultimately we worked together in a, in a somewhat positive way. It wasn't easy, but we changed their policy. We changed their practice. They eliminated seclusion from the district. They reduced restraint. The year this happened to my son, we had 750 seclusions, over 500 restraints. This wow. past year, uh, the last date I got, I, I was about the midway point of last year. They had um, no seclusions and I think 10 restraints. So it's possible. It's absolutely possible to, to change these things. So the alliance formed, um, to, to give you kind of an overview without getting too deep, we focus on three things. We focus on legislation and policy. Um, that might be a policy at a local school level, a policy at a board of education level, a law at a state level, a law at the federal level. Uh, we're trying to influence changes in laws and policies. And what I would say to you is it's not just restraint seclusion, although that's a big part of our focus. In a school, it might be restraint, seclusion, suspension, expulsion, corporal punishment. Uh, I don't recall where you're located, but we do have uh, a number of states still that allow corporal punishment in schools. Uh, states that allow you to hit a child as a form of discipline in schools. I, there's a mountain of research that tells us wow. that should not be happening, but it is still, and and you could say it is state-sponsored child abuse, and I would agree with that. Mm -hmm. um, so at any rate, we focus on on a lot of issues, and and even more broadly, as I mentioned before, it's not just these things. It's really all the things that are often being done to kids and others in the name of behavior. It are it's the outdated approaches around behavior. It's a lot of rewards and consequences that aren't working for kids. It's a lot of approaches um, that are really causing harm and leading kids down the school to prison pipeline. And the bottom line is that we can do better. So we focus on changes in laws and policies. We've been involved in uh, legislation in many states across the country. Uh, my home state, Maryland, about a year ago, we passed a, a ban on the use of seclusion in all of our public schools. Um, we've worked in Washington State, Vermont, Connecticut, um, Texas, um, uh, Illinois, and kind of across the country. We have advocates in Canada that we're working with to, to try to affect changes there. Uh, I've also testified for the federal legislation, a bill called the Keeping All Students Safe Act. That bill has been reintroduced. In fact, I would encourage listeners to, to look up information about that bill and, and, and call their representatives and say, hey, uh, we should support the Keeping All Students Safe Act and, and get rid of you know, prone restraint and supine restraint and seclusion in schools across the country. Um, so that's one focus. The other big part is education. So to me, it's not just enough to say, don't do these things, they're bad, they're harmful. What we really need to do is say, and there are better things we can do. Mm -hmm. And here they are. One of the first questions I was asked when I began doing this work was, well, what else do you expect us to do when? And I get some kind of scenario. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, the first time somebody asked me that question, I didn't have an answer, uh, but now I could probably talk to you for the next five hours and give you all the things you could be doing. There's a lot of things that we can do. So we believe it's really important to educate people on what are the things that we can do? How do we avoid getting into crisis situations? Um, so we do work around um, trying to spread what works. Uh, we do, uh, like you, we do podcasts every two weeks where we interview experts, we interview educators, we interview self-advocates, we talk about better approaches. Um, I speak at conferences uh, around the country and even beyond uh, to try to bring these kind of issues um, to people's attention. Um, so we do a lot around that education piece because it's not just enough to say don't do these things, they're bad, because you can 
pass a better law and end up with unintended consequences like, hey, we banned this, but suddenly people are calling law enforcement. Well, that's not good either. We need to we need to change hearts and minds. And that's what we do through education. The final piece that we do is about family support. So um, had a conversation earlier today with a grandmother whose child uh, grandchild was being restrained and secluded and traumatized. Um, we try to point people towards local resources, talk to them about the things that they might do if your child's experiencing this or you know, maybe you're not sure. Maybe you have a non-speaking autistic child who comes home with bruises but isn't able to share with you what happens during the day. And I hate to tell you, that's not an uncommon scenario. If we look at the data, we know that autistic children are heavily impacted by restraint seclusion. Non-speaking autistic children also very heavily affected by these things. So, um, you know, those are kind of the areas that we focus on is is laws and policies, education and support. Uh, like I said, the organization has been around for about four and a half years now. Um, we're a small organization. Uh, I am um, the one full time person at the Alliance. I've got an assistant, Courtney, who is fantastic. And we've got a lot of volunteers, but we're a small organization trying to impact big change. And I really believe uh, for everybody that's out here, hopefully listening, like you have more power than you realize. You know, um, when I started this work, you know, I'm just a dad, just a dad whose child had an experience that wasn't okay and began advocating. I, uh, I'd actually been working in my career at that point. I was in a job that I probably would have told you that I would plan to retire from. I work for a university. I've been there for, well, I've been in the job for over 20 years. Um, I eventually quit my job to do this work full time because I felt it was so important Mm -hmm. what was happening to kids, what was being done to kids and knowing that we can do something different. So anyway, um, that's really what we do and what we're about. Uh, we've got a great website, which is endseclusion.org. We're on a lot of the social media channels um, and we're always looking to connect with other people and organizations. You know, um, you mentioned, um, uh, you know, PWA, um, you know, we, we've worked with PWA. We've worked with a lot of other organizations. I sit on the board of the Ark of Maryland, um, you know, um, you know, PDA North America is another uh, group that I sit on the board of, you know, there's, there's a lot of great organizations doing fantastic work and wherever we can collaborate and come together on some of these issues, we've got a lot more power. Yeah. So can parents uh, reach out through to your organization if they're having an issue? Is that absolutely. where they should start? Yeah, absolutely. I would encourage you to. And of course, um, you know, you can go to our website, which I mentioned earlier, which is just ndndseclusion.org. Uh, and uh, go to our social media. We're on, you know, all of us social media channels. Probably our biggest audience is on Facebook. We've got a lot of people that are following us there, but we're on Twitter and, and TikTok and other platforms. And of course, I'm always happy to have people reach out to me directly as well. Uh, and uh, if you want to get me, Guy Stevens and Stevens is S T E P H E N S at nseclusion.org. Um, absolutely, if there's anything that we can do to help a parent that's going through this, uh, to help a parent that wants to bring about change at their school or school district. Um, this is why we're doing this. We're doing this work to try to influence change. So I would welcome anyone that has uh, concerns or wants to talk more about this. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Is there any way that families can help support the organization? Uh, maybe they don't have a kid who's been put in restraint, but they want to, they want to help. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And, and you know, um, I appreciate you bringing that up because I'm not always very good at that. But, you know, we are, are a small organization, you know, and, um, you know, when I made the decision to leave my job and do this work full time, the, the one thing I had to figure out was how do I still pay my mortgage? And, and what I'll yeah. say is that fortunately, 
you know, that has been figured out and I've been able to get some funding to help us do this work, but we are small. We're trying to grow. Uh, if you go to our website, of course, you can make a donation there. Uh, we have merchandise that you can buy. In fact, we've had, um, uh, many um, small uh, parent groups that have um, are that are working on these issues that have bought. In fact, I've got, I think I've got the T-shirt on right now, mm -hmm. the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint T-shirt. Oh, nice! Uh, and, and worn those the board meetings. Um, so you know, you know, you can buy a T-shirt, you can make a donation, um, you know, you can make others aware of what we do and what our organization does. I'm always happy if somebody is working with a school that wants to reduce and eliminate these practices. I'm happy to have a conversation with. You know, their head of special education, their superintendent, you know, we've worked very positively with schools and school districts um, towards better outcomes. Now, mind you, not every district's there. Some are going to you know, put their head in the stands that we don't have a problem. We're following the law. We're, we're doing everything right. We're allowed to do this. Um, so at any rate, yeah, always appreciate, um, you know, donations, support, uh, connections, anything like that's helpful to what we're trying to do. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll make sure that I put all the um, the links and all of that in the show notes. So, do you mind if I ask how your son is doing? Is that uh, yeah, and, and, and absolutely, I don't mind at all, and I'm I'm glad you did. Um, that's the really um, good news that I have to share. So, uh, it goes back to 2018, which was the last time he was restrained and secluded, and when I really got into um, uh, heavily into focusing on this work and trying to influence change. Um, he is now in college. Um, you know, uh, he was in eighth grade when that happened. Uh, we were able to, through the IP process, uh, we were able to have him uh, move to a non-public or private school in our state that was trauma-informed, that was relationship-based, that really did a fantastic job. And, and they were a school that really specialized in working with kids that had trauma, including school-based trauma. Guess what? School-based mm. trauma is a real thing. Uh, a child that is afraid to go to school because they've been physically restrained or secluded, you, you know, you can't restrain a kid on a Monday and want them to come back to school on a Tuesday ready to learn. You're asking them to literally come back to a trauma site. So my son went to a school that that really helped him and, and he's done really well. Uh, he actually, he has his own little business now. He, um, in fact, I'm right now in West Virginia because I've been up helping him move into and uh, kind of make the transition to college. And he is on week four now and doing really well. But the thing to keep in mind here, um, you know, my son is doing well. Um, there are a lot of kids that this is happening to that aren't. Um, and kids that this is happening to that are being restrained and secluded at school are probably more likely to be suspended, expelled. They will be in a position where school is not a friendly place. It's not a safe place for them. They will probably disengage. They will probably begin to go less. They might end up in the juvenile justice system. They might end up in the criminal justice system. The idea of the school to prison pipeline is a very real mm -hmm. thing. Uh, my son has had a positive outcome. There are many kids that do not. And beyond that, the the other thing to mention is that the trauma is forever. Trauma does not go away. You know, we might get to a better place and we might have support and connection and all the things that are vital to heal, but it doesn't go away. So it's really important to realize that the things that, you know, even we have a lot of educators in our community. And if you look at our community, in fact, it's parents like myself, it's educators, administrators, it's occupational therapists, speech therapists, psychologists, lawyers, all sorts of people. And I'm really proud of that because our organization is about coming together to, to bring about positive change. 
And, and that's what's really critical is that we can, we can absolutely do better things and improve outcomes. And, you know, I started this because of what happened to my son. I continue to do it because once I realized what was happening, I realized there were a lot of kids out there that didn't have somebody advocating for them, that didn't have somebody in their corner. And if we can change outcomes for kids, we're going to make the world a better place. And I really believe that. So anyway, thank you for asking about my son. In fact, I suspect he's going to be coming in from class here shortly. I'm in a kind of a makeshift office right now. It's not my usual office. Um, but yeah, he, he's doing well. And, um, you know, I'm really glad that he is. Um, but again, it, it, it takes me back, as I shared earlier, that, you know, Max Benson, he was the same age as my son, similar profile. He died around the same time my son was last restrained as a glued in a school, our outcome could have been significantly different. So we've, we've got to do better and we can. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of that. Um, I'm really excited to put this episode out because uh, it's so important and I've learned so much um, just at the webinar and then talking with you. <clears throat> and you said, um, you said you had a podcast as well, right? Yep, absolutely. Uh, we we do every two weeks. We do live events, um, and uh, we push those out on Facebook, YouTube, uh, LinkedIn, uh, and there's also an audio version of it that's available. So it's a, a video podcast, but we make the audio only version available. So you can find that on Spotify or Apple Music okay. or wherever you might listen to, to podcasts. And what's uh, and it we called? Is it just the name of your organization? Yeah, it, we we call it a AASR Live, so Alliance okay. Against Constraint Live. Uh, sometimes refer to it as the End Seclusion Podcast. I should probably be more cons uh, consistent with what I call it, but <laughs> it, it's really our our live series of events that again is focused on solutions and education and how we can do better. And we've been doing it for gosh, almost four years. And over that time, we've interviewed um, some really amazing experts and families and others. We've had, you know, people like Ross Green and Mona Della Hook and Lori Desatels. Um, you know, we've had uh, self-advocates who have themselves experienced restraint seclusion. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, in fact, we're, I think, already booked out until uh, May of next year oh, wow. uh, because I keep meeting amazing people. And I'm like, oh, you've got to be on our podcast. <laughs> So at any rate, yeah, I would welcome people to, to follow us there as well. Uh, and of course, you, uh, YouTube is a great place to subscribe to our podcast, uh, our video podcast. And if you want audio only, again, your whatever platform you use, you can subscribe to it there also. Okay, great. Well, I'll make sure that um, I put this out there with it. Um, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much. Uh, is there anything that um, you wanted to say that we didn't cover? Um, no, I mean, I, I appreciate the opportunity to come on here with you. And uh, I always, you know, um, and I'll just throw this out there for any of your listeners that have their own, I'm always happy to talk to anybody that's, you know, doing a podcast or trying to raise awareness, because the the more we can get these things out there, I mean, a lot of people are unaware. And, um, you know, it's a problem. And it, it and again, it's broader than just restraint seclusion. You know, we really need to shift a lot of our approaches around better supporting all human beings, uh, you know, understanding behavior from a different perspective. Um, so anyway, uh, I'm, I'm sure I could spend much time talking about more things, but uh, I just appreciate you reaching out and the opportunity to join you on your uh, podcast. Yeah, well, I appreciate it as well. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Absolutely.